From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Man, we're both back. We're just kind of, I'm in the studio, you know, Chilling. you're at home in the basement. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. Friday. It is Friday. It's been a long week, man. Oh, yeah? Tell me about it. I have to say, too, like, this maternity leave shit, <sighs> Joanna's only been gone two weeks. It feels like three months. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a big ship to run without one of the uh, one of the main. Uh, I don't know. This analogy is already breaking down, but whatever. Without the captain, I suppose. Admiral, captain, whatever. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, it, it's just it's like the, it's the throwback. It's just me and you. Exactly. Still, so I want to hear a little bit about Napa because you teased it last week, but uh, we oh. haven't had a chance to really talk about anything that you. I know we'll get into it on the Monday next month, this coming Monday episode. You talk a little more about what you drank, but just I always love it when you're out there because I feel like you always come away with an interesting like tidbit or a bit of insight or something that you experience. Well, you know, maybe uh, let me tell you about two experiences I had, and okay. you can tell me. This is not about what I'm what I was drinking, but. So I guess, and maybe this becomes our topic for today. Who knows? I mean, we have one's plan, but this could be so long that we just do this instead. Um, so, well, first of all, I think I think Napa is just a really fascinating place. I think Napa and Sonoma, and they're so different yet so close. And I think it's really funny how like one day we had meetings in Sonoma, and we got there very quickly, even though we were staying in downtown Napa. But like everyone was like, "Oh, I never go over to Napa. It's so far." And everyone, <laughs> "Oh, I never go over to Sonoma. It's so far." It's like, guys. It's like 30 minutes <laughs> like to certain places, right? And, you know, I think it's interesting because I, I'm, I'm actually working on a piece that we'll discuss once it publishes. I think I want to make it one of our podcast topics about sort of like one of the biggest challenges I think Napa has, especially in continuing to attract younger people. But one of the things that I was really interested by was someone pointed out to me that like the only – wineries at which you're seeing a large young population aren't just wineries that are catering to young people in terms of like their design aesthetic and stuff like the ashes and diamonds and and scribes of the world but the wineries in which all of the employees at the winery are 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 themselves also young interesting i was like oh you know what that's actually really i never thought of that before but when i do go to some of these older school wineries especially in napa the the people um, at the tasting room are actually a lot older than me. And I think that could be just the nature of wh- how expensive it is to live in Napa that maybe a lot of people that are working in the tasting room rooms, these are like side career, these are second careers as retirees or something because Napa really, I think too, has become, I've noticed in the past few few years of being out there, like the a Florida, if you will. It is yeah. definitely a, a large amount of retirees that live there. I mean, I went to, um, gosh, I, I can't remember what it's called now. It's like something station. It's it's owned by Joel Gott. It's it's his like gas station and coffee shop in uh-huh. uh, St. Helena. Maybe it's just St. Helena gas station. And we got coffee one morning and it was like, we were the only young people getting coffee. Everyone else was like pulling up in their Mercedes or their BMWs and like getting out in workout gear. And they were all of retirement age, which is yeah. not, look- Someone came at us earlier for going after boomers on, you know, on comments. So also for those of you that listen to the pod and like love the pod, why don't we, let's get some more reviews on iTunes. We can make that comment go away. Um, (laughs) I'm not coming at boomers. My parents are boomers. I'm just saying it is interesting. And I think there's a different way of speaking to, you know, 
by that generation to the, to each other and then how that generation speaks to us. And so I can see why at some of these tasting rooms, some people our age feel like it's, it's a more, I don't know, like buttoned up experience than they would like to have, if you will, you know, or too serious, uh, too much about hitting like the marketing talking points. I mean, so just an anecdote, which I thought was pretty hilarious is we went to this one winery. Uh, this was the very end of the trip. And it was because we had, we'd kind of commented in one of our meetings that we hadn't really been to any wineries. And, um, the woman behind the, the bar was, of elderly age uh-huh. and she was pouring us all these different Napa cabs. Uh, this is a winery. It's like one of the original wineries of Napa and they're very famous for their Cabernet uh, as most of them are. And she pulls out this last wine and she's like, if there's one wine to buy today, you must buy this wine. It received a hundred points, but she wouldn't tell us from who, right? A hundred yeah. points. And you know, this is the wine to have in your collection. I mean, first of all, right. As we've talked about before, people our age don't really have collections or aged wine that often. Second of all, like they don't really care about scores. Third of all, for me, the wine was like so oaky, I couldn't drink it, but whatever. And so we, we try the wine and then she comes back and she's like, look, I know I want you to know I don't even get a commission, but you should buy this wine. And let me tell you why you should buy this wine. Because, you know, let's just say that one day, and this will tell you who she's used to speaking to. Because it's a script, right? Let's just say that like one day you need emergency surgery and you need to get into that surgeon, but you know, that surgeon is all booked up. Well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to call that surgeon's receptionist. You're going to say to that surgeon's receptionist, I have a bottle of blank, blank, blank. And I can give this bottle to the surgeon if and then she said, he will see me right away because all surgeons collect wine. <laughs> oh, my God. I guarantee you, he will see you immediately. And I just was like, oh, my God, this is 100%. Like why some people our age and younger are staying away from some of the tasting rooms in Napa because like this was just her script. And you can tell she says this to everybody. This is her second pass at the sale. Yeah. And we we're like, it's fine. Thank you so much for the experience. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was just. But the 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 opinion that I do want to get from you is uh, I am curious about two service experiences that I had. Sure. Besides besides that one, you don't want to you don't want a recommendation for the bottle to uh, bribe your surgeon with. Have you ever bribed your surgeon? <laughs> I have never had surgery, as it turns out. So no, I haven't. Had You've surgery. never had surgery? No, for anything? No. Oh man, I've had surgery a few times. Well, you know, we'll get into your cosmetic surgery some other time. Hey, look, you can't look <laughs> as good without a little bit of plastic, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, I no comment. Oh, no comment. I had knee surgery in college from uh, running, and I had a hernia. Yeah, well, see, this is what – I don't run. It's a good way to avoid that kind uh, of surgery. I'll tell you, man, that propofol, really, really <laughs> good stuff. Anyways, uh, but uh, I, I think I had these two experiences that were both very off-putting, and I'm curious what your um, – what your thoughts are. The first one was, uh, I have been for the the past few times I've gone to Napa. I have gone to charter Oak and I've, I've really enjoyed charter Oak. Uh, and this is the second experience I had. And it was after 
having a, a, a similarly not great experience earlier in the week. So um, I told the team we'd go to Charter Oak as our last meal, and I was able to get an 8 o'clock reservation. Usually, like, Charter Oak's not the easiest reservation to get. Yeah. And somehow, like, I, I put myself on the resi wait list, and I got off, and it's like, cool, we're going to go to Charter Oak. But Ubers are so hard to get in Napa now. That we were like, look, like let's not chance it. Let's let's just go early and we'll 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 sit at the bar and have a drink. Sure. So we get there early, and first we're like, well, maybe we don't go sit at the bar. Let's like let's go across the street first to Longmeadow Ranch, and we'll sit at that. We'll we'll try to get a drink at that yep. bar. Yep, yep, yep. But what I what I thought was interesting is this, and then this is just the New Yorker in us. We we just don't realize this. So first of all, Longmeadow Ranch said they don't they won't serve you if you're not sitting at the bar. I was like, but it's a bar. Like, why can't we just stand here and have a drink? So that was – so then oh. we were just like, okay, well, this is totally different. We're not used to this. So we went back across the street to Charter Oak. It's 730, and we check in, and I'm like, hey, I know we're early. I know it's 730, but we will just get a drink at the bar first. And, and the hostess is like, no, no, no. I can seat you right now. Hmm. We're like, okay. So they seat us. Remember, we had a, we had an original reservation at 8, and the – Waiter comes over and he's like, you know, here's all our specials, blah, blah. I really suggest that like your, for your main, you split like the, the bone in ribeye. It's really amazing. We, you know, we roasted over charcoal, blah, blah, blah. So we're like, oh, that kind of sounds good. And at this point too, by the way, which I thought was really interesting. I think I mentioned this to you when we were not recording last week, but just in passing, like we hadn't really had much Napa wine. Yeah. No one was ordering it. <laughs> So we have everyone with was like ordering everything else but Napa wine. So I said to the son, you know, we really want to have a Napa wine. And so he like recommended a few. And then I picked out the first thing he uh, is I picked up a bottle of her Chardonnay, which I love, to which it was just a little weird. He said, have you had this wine before? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, he's like, OK, I just want to make sure you've had it because it's, it's not your typical California Chardonnay. I was like, no, no, I know. I like that. Yeah. It's, you know, so we ordered two bottles of wine to help him with the flow. And then we explained to him what we were going to do. We we're going to do like appetizers, then uh, a salad and then the entree. Sure. And so he left and at around eight Oh five, our server comes over to us. This is now we've only had the appetizers. Okay. And he says, Hey y'all, I'm getting off my shift now. Okay. So you're going to be replaced by someone else on the floor. And we noticed at this point that about half of the floor empties. Okay. And five minutes later, the salads are brought. And then five minutes after that, 8.15, we still have half a bottle of Chardonnay. This new server who we've never met walks over and says, hi, everyone, we're about to bring the steak and all of your sides. And okay. all, we're just like, wait, what? Like, also, we've already open the Cabernet and it's being decanted, like it's being decanted. It's not even on the table yet. Like what's going on? And we start to notice that like, they're already cleaning up the kitchen. And, and I say, Hey, we haven't finished our salad yet. And we still have half a bottle of wine. Is there any way you can like, wait? Like we already ordered the cab and it's been opened. Like I, we we wouldn't have ordered two bottles of wine if we thought this was going to be that fast of a meal, which he took like great offense to. And was like, well, the food's already been fired. I mean, I can hold it for as long as you want me to hold it, but like it's already been cooked. <laughs> and it just like ruined the rest of our meal. Oof. And I like, I don't know if there would have been a, is there like a better way we should have handled that? Like, I don't know if the guy was just in a bad mood, but 
then, you know, five minutes later, the steak, the steak comes, you know, they drop everything and they just bring the Cabernet. And, oh, and by the way, and he just then proceeded to take the half bottle of Chardonnay and just dump it in all the glasses. Okay. Just get rid of it so that he could bring the Cabernet. It was really weird. It was like, this is a place that I've really enjoyed in the past. I want to think it was an off night, but it was interesting too how quickly they were closing. And I'm wondering if this is a staffing issue because it was a Thursday night. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, I think there is a little bit of like, my first inclination is like, okay, what night of the week was it, which you just said it's a Thursday. So not not like a, you know, maybe a Monday or a Tuesday where you could potentially imagine that there's just not a lot of, you know, later reservations. Yeah, it is, you know, you were there at the end of February, it's obviously not like peak tourist season, but you know, Napa's kind of a year round destination. I'm sure like tasting rooms and stuff were pretty I'm sure not like empty and you know it's you're getting into you know the end of February it's not like it's the absolutely like deadest time of early January or whatever I don't know I mean I I think there's there's like this weird so you know this conversation in broadly in service about like how do you handle wait tables is a is a kind of an interesting one and I've heard and seen lots of different takes on it but I think that there's a there needs to be a recognition on the part of the restaurant and the service staff that like whatever the well, two things. One is like whatever whatever the sort of expectation that the restaurant holds for when service is going to be concluding needs to be communicated to tables that are coming in towards the end of it. Yeah. You know, I've I've certainly had in in every capacity that I've worked tables that come in, you know, five minutes before closing. And it's I think always best to just sort of be clear with those people, like, here's the deal, right? Like, this is the time we close. You're welcome to come in and have a meal, but just be aware of that. And some people are like, oh, we'll be really quick. Some people are completely oblivious and you know have a long leisurely meal which kind of sucks but like you know that's part of sometimes what happens i think and then and other people kind of fall somewhere in between but i think to for you and i certainly would understand this you know an eight o'clock reservation on a thursday night especially since you actually sat down at 7 30 is like not you know it's not like you're like oh we came in at 9 45 and we're like surprised that they were closing up at that point you know when we started eating our meal i also think that pacing a meal I mean, again, you know, it's hard to know what's going on. Maybe the manager, maybe the the GM or whatever is like, look, you know, we got to get labor down. We got to be have people out of the restaurant by 930, like move them along. I don't care. Again, I, I hope that's not the case. That's a shitty dining experience to have. And having also been to Charter Oak and enjoyed myself, you know, it's it's a bummer to hear that you had a bad experience there or at least a, not a great experience there. But I think that the, like I don't think there's any reason for me to think that like you guys did something wrong. Like I think they clearly did not communicate if there was a, you know, we need to close early or we're closing earlier than you would anticipate or like, Hey, you're like the last reservation. There are all ways that that could have been communicated to your party or something like that in a more graceful, gracious way that gives you maybe a little bit of an idea or at least the ability to say, Hey, you know, I understand that, you know, we'll try and be respectful. We won't linger over, you know, dessert or whatever, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't want to feel like we're getting rushed. I mean, I I think that if you sat down at seven 30, you know, depending on the pace at which you went through your appetizer, and especially given the like transition between servers, it's odd to me that the, the your first interaction with like the replacement server was basically like, "Here's your food, yeah, like uh, op- open wide." That's just like a weird, you know. I, I we we've seen more of this. Like when I was, you know, towards the end of my time in restaurants, so far we were seeing more and more of like for a variety of reasons, like people really just being on shift work and like it literally being like, "Hey." you know, I got to clock off because whatever, you know, my shift is over or the, you know, I, it's slow and my manager wants to get rid of me or whatever. I'm passing you off to someone else. 
but there was always a way to handle that that made the guests not feel like they were there was a discontinuity in their service because you know i think most people including you guys i'm sure would would have been like okay we get it like you know who knows why you know you don't need an explanation from no. the server you know maybe they've got to go pick a kid up from a babysitter or something like it doesn't have to be communicated clearly it just needs to be like hey you know really appreciated taking care of you you all but you know i need to clock off so and so is going to take care of you they'll be over in a minute and just to have that continuity of service, especially if it's something that happens regularly, mm-hmm. should be a part of the restaurant's practice. And and to not have that sense of like, hey, we're we're handing you off to this other person, but like I've talked to them, they know what's the deal. You know, they're not going to kind of you know they're going to take they're going to seamlessly step in. You know, that's that's part of gracious service too. Yeah, I, and you know what I think is interesting is then the next day, of course, like Keith McNally, who. Love him or hate him or f- when you follow him on social, posted just this really weirdly timed post where he talked about how he had been, you know, early in his in his restaurant career before he opened uh, the Odeon and that he had gone to um, Raul's one night, which is like the really famous like French kind of steakhouse-ish in Soho uh, in the early 80s. They're really famous, especially for their steak au poivre. Um, and it was like 11.15 or something. And they closed at 11.30 and he was turned away. And he like made a, a guarantee, you know, he told himself that he was going to guarantee that any restaurant he ever had, even if you walked in with a minute before close, you could have a full restaurant experience and stay as long as you wanted. And I think that's a little bit, aggressive as well right because then that you know i i see on that point too like if we had walked in two minutes before closing we're like well, we expect to dine here for two hours like that obviously is not chill yeah. <laughs> right but um you know i i think that that's there's there's both sides of it but it, it was kind of weird because you you know no one gave us any of the, those heads up as you said right no one was like hey we're we're really trying like If had the waiter said at the very beginning, hey, you know, the kitchen closes down at 8.15, so you guys can order all this stuff, but I just want to let you know it's going to come really fast. Like, they didn't do that. They instead – they encouraged the two bottles of wine to be ordered. And, you know, it's not like we were a huge group where we were splitting the two bottles, right? It was was a four-top, and we were going to drink through those two bottles throughout the course of what we thought was like – an hour and a half to two hour meal. And instead we were like out of there in like an hour and it was very, it was wild. And again, like I think those are these things where we've talked about this now a bunch in terms of just wine pricing. I think pricing in general, this is what, you know, I feel like you've really seen this after COVID where the prices at restaurants are very expensive and, you know, that's causing the customer to be much more, um, aware of the experience right Mm -hmm. and sometimes and and it feels like sometimes those experiences aren't as great as they have been um and i think that that's a staffing problem right but that still at the end of the day what sucks is like this was a restaurant that i've really enjoyed in the past like i would not recommend to anyone in the future you know and that's because of one experience but still like it was a really crappy experience and yeah you know it was a bummer too to take colleagues and people that i you know you want to impress there and they're like, oh, this kind of sucked. And yeah. that sucks. So, I, you know, I think this might be the whole podcast, Zach, because yeah, let's do it. we've gotten a lot of questions from readers about interactions, especially with Psalms. We get this more, sorry, from listeners, readers, listeners. We get this question 
interaction with Psalms, we get more than anything else. We, we almost never get emails from people being like, I had this weird interaction with a bartender. I mean, can you remember the last time we've had anyone email like, Hey, I felt intimidated by my bartender. Or, hey, I felt intimidated by the guy pouring, you know, at the, at the tap room. I, I kind of can't, but we get a lot of the Psalm stuff. And recently someone emailed in asking you specifically, Zach, about interaction they had, which I'll let you talk about in a second. We don't have yep. to name the restaurant, but it was uh, something with wine service, which I think is, you know, it, it shows how much anxiety people have around this and how so often the the person on the other side kind of gets it wrong as well. But then the person has anxiety doesn't know how to speak up. And so then it just becomes this really bad experience. So I was very, very lucky. I'm not going to say that I wasn't lucky. I was extremely lucky to be able to go to the only three-star Michelin restaurant in Napa Valley. I'm not going to say their name, but everyone should know who they are. Um, very easy. <laughs> Google to exists. Y'all can find them. Yeah. And uh, it was a work dinner. Um, and I was put in charge of ordering the wine. And the first interaction that happened was I was looking at the Chablis section and I saw a Chablis that I had never had before. And I was really interested because it was a 2009 and it was only priced at like $120 a bottle. And again, I want to be clear. The reason I want to give prices and I said is, is because it was a three-star Michelin restaurant. So like, I think you can, most people can probably connect that there was, there were no wines under a hundred dollars on this list that I could find. Um, they also gave me the wine list on an iPad, which I kind of hate. <laughs> Just because, yeah. like, I want to, like, I want the sheets. I want to be able to hold my fingers in places and go back and forth. But so, I was looking at a Chablis to start the meal, and I figured there was um, five of us. I was like, oh, well, we'll get three bottles of wine throughout the course of the meal. So I thought I'd start with a, you know, a white, then I go to a light red, and then I'd pick like a fuller bodied red towards the end of the meal. And so the first interaction that happened was, you know. I looked at this and so the psalm comes over and I ask about the wine. I'm like, hey, I've never I don't know this producer. This is really intriguing to me. I think this is very well priced. Also, it was a it was a um a premier crew. Mm-hmm. And they had three different uh vineyards from this producer, all premier yeah. crew. So I was like, I've never heard of this producer before. Um and this is really interesting that it's a 2009 and it's, you know, only like $120 on your list. Um, can you tell me about it? And the Psalms immediate, you know, reaction was, uh, it's, it's a geeky wine. Like it's cool, but like, I really think you should go more classic Chablis. You should order Raveno, which dear listener was 10 times the price. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe the, maybe the Psalm is, you know, just thinking I want Chablis. And think I and thinking that I saw the date, right? I was trying to put my put myself in their shoes. Like maybe they think I'm just trying to order old Chablis, and that's why I asked. So I go, no, no, no. I'm really interested in this wine. I'm looking at for something like this, and I did not point at the Chablis, at Premier Cru, at the year. I pointed directly at the price because that's what you've told us to do, right, Zach? Like that's yeah. what people sort of say you should do. Is that right? Yeah, be direct. Like I think. You know, if there's a price point that you are comfortable with, it's it's always good to either you know to be you know you don't have to necessarily come out and say it directly, especially in, given the setting. Right, I did not want to want a hundred dollar bottle of wine. That's why I pointed at it because yeah. my, my guests don't need to know how much I'm spending on the wine. Exactly, right? but I needed him to know because I'm you're recommending like an eleven hundred dollar bottle of wine right now, and I'm not looking to spend eleven hundred dollars on a bottle of wine. Yeah, so I pointed the price. And he then says, well, if you're not interested in Raveno, may I suggest the other classic producer? 
yeah. which was um, Dovisat. <laughs> Dovisat. May I may I recommend Dovisat? So he, we scrolled a Dovisat, which is just oh, just eight hundred dollars a bottle. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my gosh! Like, so then I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to get any help with this white. So then I just like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to get the white. The Chablis that I found is fine. And then I quickly ordered um, like a, a Volnay around the same price and then a, um, a Valtellina at Superior. And, you know, all around the same price points. Sure. And then the Psalm looks at me and says, in front of everyone, sir, I'm really sorry, but I really, I really must insist you did not order enough wine. Oh, my God. This is the second time, folks, I'm hearing this story. And I just, you, it's also an audio medium, so you and Adam can't even see what I'm doing. But there was a like Picard esque facepalm moment for me here as I heard this again because it's just like the the just the gumption to be like, you know, this person knows nothing about you or your guests. Doesn't know if two of them don't drink. Doesn't know if someone is pregnant. Doesn't know if someone is you know uh, trying to watch their calorie. Like to just be like, you don't have enough wine. I God, I, yeah. Continue. Sorry, I'm just so, gonna get angry. Otherwise, yeah. Well, this is what I like. I want. I want, I want you to get pissed. So <laughs> just, just trigger me. Go ahead. Yeah. So then, so then I'm like, okay, like I guess I'll order one more bottle of wine. So he has this very strong endorsement for a bottle that I've had before, um, that I've liked, but it's it's a it's a pricier bottle than the other ones. Um, but you know, I was like, it was Clorajard, and I was like, cool. Like I've had it before, I've enjoyed it. Like let's let's do it. And it's like the last wine, and he's like, and I and he said, and this vintage is is very fairly priced, and it, and so he recommended like this this one specific vintage, and it was a little bit cheaper than the other vintages they have on the list. So we do it. Wines start coming out right. Meals great. Finally, you know, first of all, that Chablis was fucking fire. Like, it was cool. really cool, like really cool. And I'm actually going to open up my photos right now because I took a picture of it because I want people to get this Chablis because I don't care that maybe some people don't know about it. It was amazing. Um, it was Danielle Etienne de Fay. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, those are good wines. Agreed. It was – I'd never – I don't think I've seen it in New York. It probably is here and someone's going to blow me up, but I had never had it before. And it was his Cote de la Chette mm-hmm. Premier Cru. It was fucking awesome. So I'm glad I still ordered it. Um, <laughs> but so then the the Clover Jard comes out. And oh, by the way, also like we're still – we're like in the middle of the meal. So the, they've been pouring the wines very quickly. Yeah. And he has me taste it. And the second that I smell it, I'm like, I'm, you know, I've had Clover Jard a few times before. This one is much heavier on Brett much heavier on breath than I've ever experienced. And the Psalm's like, okay, it will blow off. But like, guys, Brett doesn't blow off. Like that's a, that's an urban legend. Like Brett is an infection. You know, it, it is a spoilage yeast that eats the sugars and turns it into like, it's, it is not, it doesn't blow off. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So he pours it through without even like saying, do you want me to take the wine away? And this, at this point I'd only had that small taste. So he could have taken the wine away at that point, but he didn't. Pours it completely through. And then the guest to my right of me, to the right of me, turns to me and says, hey, Adam, like, this wine's really, really bready. Like, I don't like it. And so we call the psalm back over. I'm like, hey, this really isn't blowing off. It's really strong with Brett. 
And he says, well, that's just the characteristic of this vintage. <laughs> I guess it explains why it was cheaper. Yeah, exactly. But I'm like, okay, so you haven't, you didn't tell me that when you sold me the wine. You didn't tell me that when you opened the wine. You didn't know that the first time I said Brett. And they says, but I, but I'm going to take this away because I can tell it offends you. <laughs> yes, so, it's the wine that's offending you at that point. I was like, okay, cool. So he takes it away. He's like, I'm going to bring you something else. He brings another wine that was like actually more, more fairly priced, actually a really cool old Rioja, which was great. But then when he brings the old Rioja, he says, and sir, I must insist, you still did not order enough wine. <laughs> My God. And so he like basically strong arms us into getting a fifth bottle that gets open during dessert. Yeah. And so that was my experience. And like, I sat there being like, again, this is one of those things where, you know, this is, this is a very expensive meal in general. Um, and I, I think anyone that goes to these meals has the, ha, just, you just have a lot of anxiety at a meal like this, right? Because you know, it's expensive. It's also special. There's a lot of pressure at any of these meals, whether it's business, pleasure, et cetera. And, I haven't had that happen to me at a, a meal of that caliber. And I've only been to it. I think it was like the second Michelin, three-star Michelin meal I've ever been to in my life. Um, but even when I've gone to like fancy restaurants in New York, I've never had something like that happen. Yeah. So maybe it was the inexperience of the Psalm. You know, maybe they were young. I mean, maybe they were younger. I, I'm not really sure. But it was really crazy. And you and it affected, the, and again, it was one of these that kind of affected the table. Because everyone's kind of watching this happen and being like, huh, this is weird. Like, and the biggest thing for me is I, I just I don't understand in, in the in in this profession, and so I'm curious what experiences you've had in fine dining, you know, when, when you've dealt with this, like it it feels like you it turns into like this comp like you're being combative with your with your server, with your psalm. You're like you're fighting against them because like they're recommending something, but you don't want that something. And then you feel like you're disappointed by not ordering what they've recommended. And it's like an almost like I'm going to like who's more right. It's just it's all very weird. Uh, yeah. And it was not fun. Yeah. So I, a couple things. First of all, one thing that you left out on this retelling, which I thought found interesting when you first told me the story is also, yeah. you know, you had to sort of fight with the Psalm to even like be allowed to order wine by the bottle. They were like very insistent about you all doing the pairings, which if I, if I recall correctly, you told me where you could pick either uh, four or five or six hundred dollars a person. That's what they had offered us. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you get a real sense from the get-go that, like, the restaurant's expectation in this case is, like, that's the amount of money per person you will be spending on wine at a minimum $400. And, and really, you should be probably spending 600 because you're not – you know, you're here to really enjoy your experience, aren't you? And, and I mean, we'll have another episode at, uh, at some point about wine pairings that we've talked about on the episode, on the podcast so before. <laughs> I find them to be generally a waste of time. They're, it's rare that they are well-curated enough that they're worth the amount of money you pay, especially because mm -hmm. you do see a lot of control. Um, and that can work in the right setting, but I, I would be, you know, it, it's not what I would generally opt to do even in a, or at any restaurant, um, how many, however many Michelin stars it has or not. But the other thing about this is I, I think that there is this element that might be unique to places like this or relatively unique to places like this, which is like you and most of the people dining there are, one-off guests, right? You're probably never going to go back. You might go back 10 years from now, but you are, for the sake of the restaurant, certainly for the sake of the sommelier, they're never going to see you again. And so it really becomes this, this sort of exercise for the restaurant in a way of like, just how much money can we extract from this person or this table, their one pass through here. 
And so that's where the pushiness, I think, comes from. That's where the expensive add-ons come from, all those things, because they're not really worried about building rapport and trust. You know, in my restaurants and various experiences, you know, I never worked in a place with any Michelin stars to say nothing of three. And so we were, in one way or another, at least somewhat dependent on our regulars. And with that kind of restaurant, that kind of dining, and that kind of wine service, you know, you're, you're the the short-term gain of convincing someone to get a more expensive bottle than they wanted to order or getting an extra bottle of wine that they don't really finish, you're just losing return business. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it was always drilled into me that like, it's never worth it, right? You never want to, you never want to turn someone away from being a regular. Right. And yes, sometimes, you know, because of what people tell you that they're only ever going to dine there once. But even then it's, you know, you're not really trying to soak them for every last you know, kind of dollar and cent you can get. But again, you know, these are different restaurants with a different sort of, you know, people are not, you know, salivating over the reservation for for months. They're not, you know, desperate to try and get it. It just was, a, I never worked in a place with that kind of uh, rep and that kind of clientele. So it was mm-hmm. never my experience. So I can't speak to that from from personal experience exactly. But what I will say is like, just as a fundamental thing about service and then specifically about wine, one thing you never want to do is like pick a fight with your guests. Like sometimes right. guests will be confrontational and combative. And, you know, in general, it's best to avoid any of that, even even if it means a little bit of sort of um, maybe sub- sublimating your own impulses. Mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, this, this psalm seems like they were keen to, frankly, kind of like wine shame you in front of your table. Like, both like, oh, do you know what you're doing? Or are you a, you know, do you, are you a cheapskate? And or like, don't you want to enjoy yourself? Like, do you want to order enough wine for the table? And just to me, that whole thing, like to, to I can't even, I can't even fathom telling a table, you didn't order enough wine. <laughs> I mean, I can fathom someone asking, and I, they did get asked from time to time, like, hey, is this enough? Whether it was food or wine or whatever. And then, you know, you want to give a somewhat honest answer. I mean, you don't want to tell someone like, you know, in the same way that if a table orders, you know, a table of six people orders a single bottle of wine and they're like, well, do you think this will be enough? You know, I might have said, well, you know, that's less than a glass of wine per person, you know, depends on how much you think you'll drink. But it's never my place to know at the outset. It's impossible for me to know. And I shouldn't assume that everyone is going to drink the same amount of wine. Everyone's going to drink a lot of wine and, and that and some people may not drink any wine, right? They might not drink at all. They might prefer cocktails or beer or who knows what. And so it's really not my place to to assume anything, even if I'm just doing basic like, oh, it's X number of people and we expect, you know, X amount of wine per person per meal or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so that part is all really, really kind of gross. I also think the other thing that's <laughs> weird gross. to me is like... The other thing that's weird to me is just kind of like, I mean, I guess maybe based on what you ordered, this person had a reasonable expectation that you mm-hmm. would generally like something like Clojure, which for people who aren't listening is a Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. So, you know, not like, you know, it's, it's for people who know it, it's obviously highly regarded and, and is um, prized and all that, but it's not, we're not talking about like a super, what do I say? Like, it's not like you ordered, you know, to come back to the earlier part of the conversation, it's not like you ordered like a classic Napa cab and they could just, right. or they, or they recommend a classic Napa cab and we're like, here's a wine that like someone is going to know what to expect and get it. And even if you were like, oh yes, I know Clorajard, I like it. It's right. It's just, the whole thing about it is just weird to me. And, and again, I mean, you've, you've explained pretty clearly, I think how, how it felt on the receiving end. And I just, what I don't know is like, and maybe this is where listeners uh, can chime in. And I should mention that we did, as you said earlier, got an email um, kind of connected to this or related to this about um, someone having a, a sort of wonky experience with a sommelier at a restaurant in Los Angeles, which I suppose we won't name, but uh, a well-known restaurant 
in LA and brought in a bottle of wine and felt just really kind of off put by how the Psalm handled it, both in terms of like, you know, kind of not really prioritizing opening and pouring their wine and then sort of tasting their wine multiple times. It was just, it was an awkward story to read. Telling them uh, how they should serve. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Asking the, the guest if they would like the wine decanted. And then when the guest said they wanted decanted, like basically telling them that they were wrong, which is like an older bottle of Bordeaux. It's not like an unreasonable thing to expect that wine decanted. And certainly if you're going to ask for what the guest wants and then tell them that they're wrong, it's like, the fuck are we doing here? But what I don't know is like, to some extent, I buy a little bit of the argument that like, this is born a little bit out of like, yeah, labor shortages. Maybe people are working longer or more shifts than they used to. Maybe these people, these sommeliers, et cetera, are just like a little more ragged than we give them credit for. But at the same time, it's hard for me not to kind of just look at all of these stories in one way or another and many others that I've heard and, and we've received and sort of feel like there's this problem where, you know, wine service at the, at these higher end places is just like, it's so enraptured with its own pretense and formality yeah. And it's like the example that in the email that John sent us about this sommelier, like taking multiple tastes of his wine, it just kind of like, who you know, the, the guest brought the wine in. If the wine is flawed, that's the guest's problem. And if they just, if they, you know, realize that and decide, oh shit, you know, we've got to order a bottle of wine, then great for you. But like, you're not really entitled to like an ounce and a half of their wine just because they brought it in without them right. offering it. And like, they don't, you know, like the ritual of the psalm tasting every bottle before it's served, I think is mostly ridiculous in the first place. But if it's in a restaurant where, you know, it's expensive bottles of wine and maybe there is real risk to a situation kind of where a, a, a somewhat flawed bottle goes to the table, you don't want that to be the experience your guests have. Like maybe I can kind of see the the argument for it. But in general, like it just is it just is like an anachronism that I think you know, kind of got turned into a job perk for Psalms in some way. Like, oh, you get to taste all these wines. You get to like drink while you work, um, which I mean, let's be clear. Lots of people in restaurants manage to do whether they should or not. Um, in any case, I just, we're in this weird spot, right, man? We just keep coming back to this about wine. And and I feel like, God, like restaurants and especially the places that you would think would would be the the best and most beneficial places for wine, you know, these really kind of nicer restaurants, they just seem to be doing wine dirty. I don't I don't get it. I mean, look, and I think this is what it, this was interesting that you said about this experience uh, that John had was that like if you bring in the bottle, I don't like the psalm shouldn't have to like if you're paying the corkage, pop the cork, do what the guest says, and then look on the guest side, it is the appropriate thing to offer the psalm a taste. That's like a nice thing to do, right? Where you say hi, would you like to taste the wine? But like you need to taste it all. It's their bottle. If it's fucked, it's their problem. Yeah, they exactly. bought, and, and then guess what? Then they're going to have to then buy a, wine, a bottle of wine on your list if they want to keep drinking wine. Like it, that is what it is. Like I, that's why I, that that example to me was also so weird. It's like the amount of times it sounded like this wine was tasted and brought around, and you know the, the, the psalm tasted. Then like the psalm's beverage director tasted, and it's just like this is a lot of pomp and circumstance for a wine that you actually are not selling. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It was brought from someone else's private collection. And like, I do have another question for you about, about that. So we've gotten this question before as well is, uh, just around the, the BYOB aspect of restaurants or corkage fee, right? Not BYOB, but you know, is it the expectation that, that someone should check, try to check the wine list before they bring a wine in? Because I was at a restaurant recently in New York where someone brought in a bottle of wine and I was sitting at the bar and they 
came in and with a friend and sat at the bar and actually brought a bottle of Ravino. <laughs> and they were told by the person behind the bar, we have this on the list. So we're not going to open this for you. And then the response from the guest was, I looked at your list online and I didn't see this vintage on the list. So like, and she's like, well, we, but, but here it is. It's just, it wasn't updated online. So like, where does that all stand, Zach? Like, is, is it a no go to bring in a bottle of wine that's also on the, on the restaurant's list? Like, is that, are you not supposed to do that? Is that the restaurant's call? And then also, how do you play that though? If like the guest's like, look, I looked online, your list wasn't updated online. This vintage wasn't there. I brought it in. Not my problem. You have it now. Like, how does that all work? Yeah. I mean, I think the answer to this is like, again, comes back to something we were talking about with your last story about kind of like. Why is it that wine service sometimes feels so confrontational? And I think it depends to me again, like uh, restaurants I worked at, the restaurants I ran, we basically would never not open a bottle of wine for someone. Like, yes, would we have preferred it if people didn't bring in bottles that were on our list? I guess. You know, why is it that, you know, we also would have preferred that people didn't bring in, you know, $15 bottles of wine, but some people wanted to pay more for in corkage than they did for the wine at the store. And like, you kind of just go like, hey, you know, it's kind of not my business to really get in the middle of that. And, you know, right. if you like this I, wine, you like this wine. Yeah. Or like you want to get, you want to spend the minimum amount of money on wine, you know, that's your deal. And, and to me, you know, I never, again, never worked at a place that had like, you know, that was like a, a sort of restaurant where it was like oh the wine list is like the thing that people go there for so i can't speak to that directly obviously i know lots of people who have and have been to those places and all that my feeling with bringing wine into restaurants in general is like i do think it's good practice to you know be considerate of the restaurant's list and you know probably don't bring in some if you want to take the time to look you will at least give yourself the protection of you know a a restaurant may choose to not open your bottle of wine, they have the right to not do it. Like it's not a, you're not, they're not obligated to do it for you, you know, fundamentally. And so if you want to avoid that, yeah, maybe it's good to peruse the list and just make sure you're not bringing in something that they already carry. Um, I also think that like, you know, there is some, there's sort of a way in which like being able to bring in something that is outside the purview of the restaurant in general is maybe a, a, another way to kind of feel like hey you know i really want to have this bottle of wine it's a Mm. special bottle of wine it's you know whatever you know for me it's an easier thing to sort of reconcile with the with the reality that the restaurant is kind of you know is not profiting from you bringing in wine in the way that they might from selling you wine and again is that your responsibility as the diner maybe not um but you know you gotta understand it's it's gonna create perhaps a little bit of tension i think one of the things that bugs me about so much of this and it comes to all of the stories in some way that we've been sharing is this like sense of entitlement that you hear and see in some of these experiences where mm-hmm. like the sommelier the, or the restaurant as a whole feels entitled for any single, any single diner to spend sort of X amount of money on wine. And it's right. just like, that ain't it, man. Like it's not, you know, just cause someone is coming in and dining. Yeah. Like it's great in a way when that, when people come in and they dine and they're like, Oh, bring us the, $8,000 bottle of Grand Cru Burgundy. Like, cool, right? You know, I mean, then you got to hope they tip on it, you know, if you're in a place where that's a relevant thing. But like, functionally, like, yes, everyone has stories at whatever kind of restaurant you work at. Everyone has stories of selling the most expensive bottle on the list and that being an exciting moment. And when you're, I think, especially when you're younger, like, that's a bigger thing. And look, the money is real. And if you make more money mm-hmm. from that, as most people do, I'm not, I mean, people are working in restaurants to, to, to pay their bills to to make a living so like right. i'm not out here saying like they shouldn't care about their their income of course they should but i think there's also this thing of like what 
in the end, do you even as an individual say a thing of a restaurant as a whole gain from being confrontational and combative with your guests? And I think the answer is you don't gain anything. You know, you just get people who walk away feeling like, fuck. And like, as just to come back to the Charter Oak example, like you're in Napa with some regularity and you not, you saying like, you know, the next time you're there being like, you know what? I had this really bad experience there. I don't want to dine there again. Like that should not, you know, if the people from Charter Oak are listening or hear about this, as they might, you know, we, we got some listeners, some listeners yeah. in Napa, they might drop a, they might drop this uh, a note on this to that to those people. Like they they should not be pleased with how this takeaway, and not just because we're on a podcast talking about it. Although in this day and age, you never know who's going to go out and talk about things. You know, it doesn't it's not just Yelp. You know, yeah. you're in Napa. There's a lot of people who have lots of access to, you know, who knows what. So I think it's just you know, it's bad for the restaurant. It's bad for the individuals. Cause in the end, like you don't want to, you know, it's not good for you as a server, as somebody or whatever, for your table to walk away feeling like they had a shitty experience. That was not shitty for things that are kind of outside of everyone's control, but shitty for things that like, because your approach to their dining experience was like just backwards. And then in right. the end, the last thing I'll say about this, and then we really probably should wrap is that, you know, there are two kinds of approaches to service, right? And, you know, there are a lot of people who have talked about this. There's a lot of different ways to to approach it. And um, there are people who are technically proficient at the elements of service. And wine is, I think, an area where you see a lot of this, right? People have a lot of practical experience. They might have a lot of certifications. They might have, you know, whatever, a lot of knowledge. Right. But translating that into an enjoyable and sort of um, f- customer-centric experience isn't always easy. And that I will say that, you know, whether it's with wine or with almost anything else, mm-hmm. a number of the best experiences I've had in my life as a diner have been with people who may not have been the most experienced, the most knowledgeable, the most technically proficient, but they seem to genuinely care that I enjoyed myself. Mm-hmm. And that is a that is a truism about service and about hospitality that has to carry through through all elements of it. It cannot just be the job of the the host or the server to be hospitable. It has to be the responsibility of the sommelier or anyone else who's touching the table. Because if the, if the psalm and the wine service, part of it is detached and confrontational and crassly kind of financial, well, that's a big part of the dining experience and it undercuts whatever else the restaurant might be doing or trying to do. And, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. Totally. Dude, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you so much for hearing, uh, about my experiences and giving on them. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, this just this just proves that in general we're all trying to figure it out. But that, you know, sometimes if you have a, a not a great experience, you should, you know, it's it's okay to be unhappy about it. And so, my question for you though is like, should we have called the manager over at least in the Charter Oak experience? So, I think the last thing I will say on this is is twofold. One is I've found that the best way to handle this, and I have done this a few times when I've had service that I found, you know, sort of dissatisfactory for whatever reason is I think the best thing to do is follow up afterwards with like an email. Cause right. for one, I think there's time in the moment. It's really hard. That becomes a, unless you really like, you know, it's like one thing, if you feel like I've really, you know, the server has been like, you know, whoever has been like, something's really, really, really wrong where like, I mean, I don't know what it would be exactly. I can't mm-hmm. even think of a good example, but like, you know, if someone was like aggressively rude to you or like, so, I mean, again, I can't really picture this happening, but it, I'm sure it does happen from time to time. 
But I think most of the time, the problem with do it, t- addressing it in the moment is it kind of is like an awkward, you, you need a little bit of space, right? I think mm-hmm. there's the element for me, it's always been of like following up afterwards and being like, and, and to be fair, I have also, and I think this is great to do too, when I've had particularly exemplary service, I like to kind of get in touch with someone at the restaurant and be like, hey, so-and-so did a really great job. I thought they handled the situation beautifully, or they just were really, con- you know, they just did a great job of service. And, you know, those those things are really nice to get as a server who got a few of them uh, over the course of my career. It was always really nice to hear from people who had had a really good experience and appreciated enough to take a little bit of time, not just when they're at the restaurant, although it's always, of course, nice to hear that too, but but after the fact. And I think that after the fact is also better because it allows the sort of, you know, you or whomever to be clear about what might have been objectionable or unpleasant or distasteful. And it kind of is like the transaction is finished, right? That you've paid. It's not about the feeling that that sometimes happens in restaurants where some people complain because they know they're going to get free stuff out of it. You know, they're going to get things taken off their bill. And obviously I'm not saying, you know, I know you wouldn't do that, but the restaurant may not know that. And so there's, when you do it after the fact, you kind of remove the, the, the financial consideration from it. You've paid your bill, you know, you've moved on, whatever, but you're just like, Hey, you know, I want you to be aware of this because it was a really, you know, it was not the experience I was hoping to have, you know, and the only thing you can you know, when someone makes a mistake or a restaurant makes a mistake, the only thing I think fair thing to do is to give them an opportunity to make it right. And in the middle of a, of a meal, if they fuck up your order, sure, you should tell them. You should say like, hey, this isn't what I ordered or hey, this steak is, right. you know, well done and I ordered it medium rare or whatever. But for broader kind of like the whole scope of service thing, there's not really a way to do that in the experience. So it's after the fact, you address it, you give them a chance to reflect on it. You know, And they might say, we'd love to, you know, take something off your bill or we'd like to, you know, send you a gift card or whatever, right? And like you as an individual, any individual person can decide how to handle that situation going forward. But when you take it out of the setting of the restaurant and and move it to sort of sometime after, I think it just gives those comments more weight because it's clear Mm -hmm. that you've thought about them enough to take the time to send an email to, to a stranger functionally and say like, hey, I just need to let you know about this. This is great. Well, if you have any other questions for Zach about service, hit us yeah, up. Or you have other experiences that you want to share. Like, I, we love to get the emails that are like, hey, this scanned weird to me. What do you think? Yeah. Hit us up at podcast.com. It's, it's always, you know, we're always happy to answer. Um, and uh, Zach, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you this uh, Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.